This is a story of who we were. How we got here. And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us as we take history off the page. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Wise words there from Master Yoda to open our podcast episode today about life in Soviet Russia. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the Star Wars series, that's, of course, from 1999's Phantom Menace. It's a very famous scene where Anakin Skywalker is is sort of starting to become a Jedi, and Yoda is kind of probing him. The rest of the council is probing him, and they start to realize, oh, there's, you know, a little bit of fear in this guy. It's something that we as Jedi Knights, we need to control, we need to be careful of. Now, many of you are probably wondering, what on earth does Star Wars have to do with the Soviet Union? And the short answer to that is that the quote that I just played for you is basically one way of understanding one of these great philosophical and moral questions of the modern era. How or why are people so inhumane to one another? You know, I'm recording this podcast episode in October of 2022, as I've mentioned several times on the podcast. There's this very bloody war going on in Ukraine. Seems like civilians are being killed on a daily basis. There's news about new atrocities and war crimes that seems to come out every day. And so the great question is, why do people do this to each other? This is the 21st century. Aren't we supposed to be civilized by now? Aren't there supposed to be rules and customs that govern the use of violence that determine who is and who is not a legitimate target in war? 70, 80 years after the Holocaust, haven't we figured out yet that innocents, women and children and the unarmed and the elderly, haven't we figured out that we're supposed to leave those people alone? And yet, is not the story of the 20th century the story of one atrocity after another? The Holocaust, genocides in Armenia, Rwanda, Cambodia, Darfur. Some people debate about what happens in the Balkans. Some people would say it was genocide. Some people say, oh, no, no, it's ethnic cleansing. Like, that's so much better. There's, of course, the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. The complete destruction of cities like Dresden and Coventry and Warsaw during World War II. Stalin's gulags, the Holodomor, colonialism, the great Chinese leap forward, and on and on and on and on. We keep saying never again, and then mass violence against civilians keeps happening again and again. So again, the big question is, why is that? What enables people to kill innocents? to use violence and to think that that's okay, not just to defend yourself from other soldiers, you know, rivals, things like that, but but what enables human beings to kill people who are essentially defenseless? Now, over the years, historians have developed a lot of answers to this key question. And of course, each instance is tied to its own specific circumstance. But this ability to set aside human norms against the use of violence on civilians Again, it's a question that we've been asking for a long, long time. And it's a question that we've been asking about the Russian Revolution and the birth of communism 
for a long, long time. Because as we kind of pointed out in our previous episode, the Russian Revolution was so destructive, so savage, that it defined European politics for a century. As I've said many times, you cannot understand the willingness of individuals to abandon democracy. You can't understand the attraction of an ideology like fascism without first coming to understand the terror caused by the Bolshevik Revolution in other parts of Europe. And the violence that caused that terror was not accidental. It was not a byproduct or a flaw or a mistake as it was during the high point of the French Revolution. We talked about this in one of our previous podcast episodes. The French Revolution, it doesn't start out to be bloody and violent, but it sort of spirals out of control, despite the best efforts of some of its leaders. But in the case of the Russian Revolution, in many ways it's even worse, because the violence that's experienced during the Russian Revolution is not accidental. It is, in fact, intentional. The Bolsheviks saw violence as a tool, as a device, as a positive thing that could be used to create true social harmony through the physical elimination of their enemies. And that is what makes the construction of the Soviet state so scary. It embraced and drank up and celebrated the widespread use of violence in the name of justice and in this case, in the name of the working classes specifically. So again, the great question is, why? What went so wrong in Russia? Why did an ideology that was based upon notions of justice and equality, that talked about again and again the the need to recognize the humanity of the working classes, how did it turn so repressive and so destructive? Quite a few historians over the years have tried to answer this question by focusing on Soviet or communist ideology. Lenin and the Bolsheviks, of course, are Marxists. They believe in the iron laws of history. And as a result, they tend to place very little value on individual human lives. To put this in a kind of very simplistic way, if I believed in Marxism, if I believe in these kind of iron laws of history, then how much does the value of one person's life really matter? If one day the proletariat as a class is going to have victory over the bourgeoisie, then what does it matter if one person, let's say they're an aristocrat, let's say they're a member of the bourgeoisie, what does their life really matter? Are they going to make a difference? Does their living or dying innocence or guilt, is that really meaningful in any sort of historical way? And the answer, of course, is no. And so the Bolshevik perspective is pretty much that if some innocent people are shot, or they starve, or they die along the way, what does that really matter? As the common saying during Stalin's rule went, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. And so, as we'll see in our next episode, even when the Stalinist purges start in the 1930s, and they're arresting people who are dedicated communists, they love Stalin, they back him 100%, they wind up in jail, they know that this is a mistake, or at least they, they think that this is a mistake, right? They're not Trotskyites, they're not fomenting revolution against Stalin. But even then, even in cases where they're about to be shot, they still profess their loyalty to Stalin and they justify it. They say, yeah, I'm in prison, but, you know, I guess it's okay because, you know, we're building socialism, we're building this great project, and you've got to break some eggs to make an omelet. And so, yes, this is certainly a part of the story of what made life in Soviet Russia so incredibly bad. As the Bolsheviks went about building their socialist state, they're really not that concerned again with the quality of life of the masses that they rule over. 
results matter, not the lived experience of the working classes and especially not the lived experiences of the peasantry, the intellectuals, the bourgeoisie, as they're building this big state. Justice to communists is understood primarily in terms of class justice, not in terms of individual innocence or guilt. They don't believe in this thing called human rights, not in the same way that the liberal democratic society would believe in it. Or there's no such thing as civil rights. Your individuality doesn't matter so much. And so as a result of this, one can make a very strong argument that millions of people will die in the Soviet Union because they just don't care. The thing is, however, none of these Bolshevik fantasies could have ever come true without the participation, the support, or at least the tacit acceptance of millions of ordinary people. Yes, the Lenins, the Stalins, the Trotskys, you have these Bolsheviks and they're creating policies. They draw up lists of people to be liquidated or arrested. They justify the use of mass violence in speeches and newspapers and other media. So certainly, the leaders of communism in Russia matter a lot to the story. But someone still had to implement those orders. Someone had to serve in the Red Guards or in the extraordinary police units called the Cheka that we'll talk about in a little bit. Someone had to be willing to go out into the countryside to take away the grain from the farmers. Someone had to serve as party functionaries to staff the bureaucracies and work in the schools and write the reports and issue the denunciations. And as we'll see, part of what made this system possible was not the threat of reprisal for disobeying orders. It's not driven by fear primarily. It's driven by genuine enthusiasm for the system. People who saw mass arrests, deportations, the seizure of property, the destruction of the opposition parties, they see this as a good thing. And they did so, again, not because they're evil or because they're brainwashed or propaganda. Many of them did so in large part because, as Master Yoda pointed out at the beginning of the podcast, hatred and anger are easily used to legitimate violence. We can disagree about any number of issues without any problem. But when those disagreements become tangled with feelings of injustice, that those who we disagree with have wronged us in fundamental ways, have taken advantage of us, or that they are at heart our enemies, well, then we feel authorized to do whatever is necessary to rectify the situation. There comes a time, even in American society, even in European society, where people say, look, I tried to go the legal way. I tried to, to find out you know, the, the best solution for it. I tried to have a dialogue. But in the end, I'm not getting my justice. And so we have this impulse. We have this desire to take matters into our own hands. And sometimes when we do that, it can be used to legitimize violence. This is not a political podcast, and I don't want to get too heavily into politics, and I'm not trying to draw equivalencies here. But as an American, again, talking in 2022, we have examples from a couple years ago of people using violence, and the reason they felt justified in using violence was they felt that the system wasn't working. You can look at some of the riots that happened in the summer of 2020, especially in places like Wisconsin. You can look at the riots that happened at the U.S. Capitol in 2021, January 6th. Without getting into questions of legitimacy of that, the people that were involved felt that it was okay for them to use violence because the system had broken down and they had been wronged. And so this is, again, a key part of what I'm trying to say. How do you look at violence and look at it and say, 
not only do I accept this, not only will I turn my, my back on it or turn a blind eye to it, but how do I look at violence and, and applaud? How do I look at violence and say that's a good thing? One can argue that that starts with feelings of anger and hatred that are then used to legitimize that use of violence, especially against civilians. Now, Russia in the summer of 1917 was a country consumed with grievances, with anger and hatred, hatred for the elites, hatred for the aristocrats, with all of their social and legal privileges and their comfy lifestyles, hatred for the factory owners and the merchants and the civil servants who seemed to live lives of comfort and plenty and who didn't have to seem to make the same types of sacrifices that peasants made, that soldiers made, that workers made. Russia was full of hatred for the fat monks and priests who never had to do the hard physical work of the common man. Hatred for the intellectuals that sat around all day enjoying the fruits of other people's labors. Hatred even for the villager who had a better harvest, more land, and generally speaking, just a better outlook on life. So the key point here is that as the Bolsheviks go about the first stages of constructing their new communist society, as they complete the seizure of power and begin building a dictatorship, a really key part of the story is that they are fueled by all of these hatreds and grievances. They gave these grievances direction and purpose and made them seem reasonable to ordinary people who at heart just wanted a fair shake in life. If you look more closely at the lives of many of these workers, many of these poor peasants, it's not hard to get a sense of why they feel a sense of grievance, right? It's not totally invented out of thin air. They had been abused. They had been neglected. They had been promised, as we talked about a couple podcasts ago, they had been promised reform. They had been promised a better lifestyle, first by the czars, and then later on by the provisional government. And it keeps not happening. They keep suffering. They keep working for others. They keep feeling like they have little future, little social mobility. But this sense of grievance is key to understanding the early days of communism in Russia. It really helps to shape the Soviet state. And so as we start this episode on the beginnings of life in the Soviet Union in the early 1920s, keep in mind that this is not just the history of another country, another political movement. We're talking here about one of the darkest periods in European history, a time when hatred and violence were normalized and weaponized, leading to the deaths again of millions of people and to the bloody 20th century. Okay, that was quite the intro there. But just to uh, kind of summarize things again before we really get into the detail of today's episode, we're going to examine life in the Soviet Union in its early years. We're basically talking the period before Vladimir Lenin dies in 1924, so 1918 to 1924. And along the way, as you've probably noticed, we're going to talk a lot about violence. We're going to see the ways in which the Bolsheviks tried to turn the philosophy of Marx, which was never meant for a sort of rural agricultural society like the Russia of 1917, we're going to see how they tried to turn that philosophy into an industrial state ruled by the working classes. And one of the really interesting things here, I think, is that you'll see how important the reactions and behaviors of ordinary Russians were in this process. Okay, so let's start by talking about the initial phases of the revolution. When we left off our last episode, Lenin and the Bolshevik Party had just seized political power in Russia in the name of the Soviets, which you'll remember were those councils of workers and soldiers that were the last bastions of political authority in a state consumed by the consequences of the First World War. 
Now, at the time of their seizure of power in late October 1917, the Bolshevik party was actually quite small. Probably numbers about several hundred thousand members who are highly concentrated in major cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, which we'll sometimes refer to as Petrograd because that's what it was renamed uh, when World War I breaks out. So how did the Bolsheviks go about building this powerful dictatorship capable of taming or perhaps directing the violent energies of the Russian Revolution? The first part of the answer to this question lies in the political brilliance of Lenin, who in a sort of Machiavellian way had a tremendous tactical understanding of the workings of power. If you want a kind of Game of Thrones equivalent, he's kind of like Littlefinger, right? He's playing chess and He's already a couple steps ahead of you. He's already thought through very closely the consequences of a variety of actions. Now, one of the things that Lenin is really brilliant about is understanding the importance of tactical alliances. You're about to get into a big fight. You're trying to overthrow the bourgeoisie. You're trying to set up your dictatorship. Who can you look to as allies? Who do you look to as sort of primary enemies? You may say we're Bolsheviks, we're communists, we obviously hate the Orthodox Church. But at the same time, you might say, well, you know, we don't really need to deal with them in the immediate moment of the revolution. We can wait a couple months down the road when it might be more convenient. And so Lenin is is really good at making these temporary alliances, especially when, again, it's most appropriate. And the biggest group that Lenin identifies and says, look, we actually, we should work with these guys. We should let them do whatever they want. We should, you know, partner with them. This is the peasantry. And this is actually kind of controversial in sort of Marxist circles. Marx looks at the peasantry and says, those guys are backwards. Those guys are superstitious. They're still religious. They're the old mindset. They're not going to help us in terms of building a new communist society. We need all those peasants or many of those peasants to actually live in an industrialized society where they can become workers, they can gain class consciousness, and, and then we can move forward with history. Well, in Russia in 1917, most of the people are peasants, and the peasants are really pissed off. And so Lenin says, look, let's just make an alliance, temporary alliance with this peasantry. We can go back and deal with them later after we've already taken control of the state. Now, in practical terms, essentially what this means is that when the Bolsheviks seize power in 1917, they let the peasants do whatever they want in the countryside. You don't try to control something that you can't already control. And so what they do is they set up these kind of peasant Soviets in the countryside, and those assemblies will then begin to divvy up the land, especially of the few remaining nobles uh, or some people that are are a bit wealthy. They'll start dividing up those large estates among the peasants themselves. In some cases, the Soviets are basically just reflections of what's called the mir. The mir was basically like a, a village assembly, Their primary function was kind of to to periodically divvy up resources to make sure that the poorest members of the community in the village would not be left behind, to make sure that the wealthiest individuals were also contributing to the the benefit or the welfare of the entire village. So there's a long history of the mir in Russian society. Now, when this takes place, the peasants are largely pacified by it. What was the big thing that the peasants wanted? They wanted land redistribution. And so when the Bolsheviks enable them to do that, when they say, hey, have at it, you guys do you, then the peasants see no reason to resist the Bolsheviks' takeover of power. Quite the opposite. The Bolsheviks are giving you what you want. Who cares what happens in the cities? Who cares about these ideal or 
or abstract concepts of law and democracy and voting and constituent assembly. Constituent assembly doesn't help me eat. Land does, land that I can farm. Now, the peasants are not the only ones that the Bolsheviks essentially make alliances with. One of the things that they do with factory workers is even the ones that aren't Bolsheviks, they encourage them to form their own committees, and these committees then will seize control of the factories. No longer is there going to be some CEO-type character, some factory manager, some boss, some supervisor that's just dictating to people, you know, when you can work, how long you have to work, are you allowed to take a break? Instead, they set up these committees, which are run by workers. And those committees are now going to start making the decisions about production, breaks, working environments, safety, managerial decisions. Of course, another great source of grievance and and people that are just kind of upset at the current system in what was Tsarist Russia and what has become democratic Russia is, of course, the soldiers. We saw at the beginning of our clip on the Russian Revolution, we played that clip from Dr. Zhivago, the soldiers coming back from the war, they mutiny. The soldiers in Petrograd, they don't want to go to the war. They mutiny. And so the Bolsheviks continue this process of basically disintegrating the imperial army. The Bolsheviks promise peace. They support peace initiatives. And especially, they help undermine the authority of imperial officers. Now, this is in 1917, 1918. We'll come back to some changes that happen a little bit later when they start building up the Red Army. But for the moment, for the moment they're seizing power, they're basically taking apart or letting crumble imperial institutions and democratic institutions. Finally, there's one other group that the Bolsheviks kind of reach out to and form these temporary alliances with, and that's the non-Russian peoples of Russia or of the Russian Empire. So you have in this period people living in the Baltic states. You have people living in the Caucasus. You have people in Finland that don't want to be a part of the Russian Empire. And Lenin basically says, look, it doesn't really matter if Finland is a part of the Russian Empire or it's not part of the Russian Empire anymore, because eventually everybody's going to have this this communist revolution. Everybody's going to move towards socialism. And all these governments are going to kind of melt away in the end anyways. So if we have to make a kind of tactical retreat here, if there's going to be a temporary government in Ukraine, for example, who cares? It's not really going to be that important. And so one of the things, again, that Lenin does brilliantly in the moment that they are beginning to form a dictatorship, in the moment that they are beginning to carry out a civil war, not only between reds and whites, but even more importantly in the cities between other socialist parties and the Bolsheviks, at the moment that they're starting to go through all this process, Lenin is not contributing to the number of forces opposing him. Quite the opposite. He does a much better job than his opponents of realizing, hey, I can neutralize these potential centers of opposition if I just give them what they want for the moment. Okay, that's basically the view from 10,000 feet, right? Lenin, the strategy, all that. But for ordinary people, the Bolshevik seizure of power is experienced as a moment of incredible freedom. And I don't mean freedom in the Anglo-American, you know, John Locke, Enlightenment type of, of way that we usually talk about it. Rather, I'm talking about the freedom of anarchy. The freedom depicted in novels like Lord of the Flies. If you've ever, never read Lord of the Flies or seen the movie, it's basically about these uh, British school children. And they're on an airplane that crashes on this like deserted island and all the adults are killed. 
And so basically it's this moment of total freedom, right? What would you do if there was no one there to supervise you, to police you, to enforce the sense of law? Another more familiar reference to some of you would be the idea of Purge Night. Basically, this is an idea that comes from a 2013 movie called The Purge, which is about this dystopic world where one night a year, there is no law. So for one night a year, we we don't have laws, there are no rules, you can go do whatever you want to. You can commit any crime, you can murder, you can rape, you can steal, and there's literally no consequence. What would you do in such a situation? It's easy to sit here and say that, well, we would be the defenders of law, we would be the defenders of order, you know, we'll protect our families from the bad guys, right? But in history, this temptation to settle scores has often been too great. At this moment where suddenly nobody's looking, there's, there's no laws, you can do whatever you want, it is in a way complete and total freedom, but for the people that have the power to enforce their freedom. And so this is essentially the way that the initial phase of the revolution is experienced like for a lot of people. It's like this kind of massive purge night. The Bolsheviks simply unlock the violent id that human beings seem to have inside, and then they channel that widespread desire for justice into symbolic and popular acts of violence that lets ordinary people feel like they are finally getting the justice that was promised to them in the 1860s during emancipation, during the 1905 revolution, and even during the February 1917 revolution that that created a democracy. It's this feeling of the elites have let us down, the promises have been out there for forever, we keep getting the short end of the stick, and now what are the Bolsheviks going to do? It's not necessarily that we love the Bolshevik plan, it's that they're going to allow us to do the things that we want to get justice on our own. So a couple examples of how this takes place. One of the first things that the Bolsheviks start to encourage, especially in in like January of 1918, is the idea of what they call looting the looters. This is the idea that you have all these sort of imperial and democratic systems that have been in place, and that's basically enabled wealthy people to enjoy the fruits of the labor of the working classes. So to right this wrong, the Bolsheviks basically begin encouraging workers to just seize the property of their class enemies outside the normal precepts of law. People literally will show up at your door. They say, where's the money? Where's the silver? I confiscate this in the name of the revolution. I confiscate this in the name of the people. And they just take it, right? They don't have to depend on the the liberal democratic state that, well, you know, if there was theft that had gone on, there, there would have been a trial. There would have been lawyers involved. Obviously, the wealthy people would probably have better lawyers, right? You're just... You, instead of waiting for the state to do anything, you just fix the situation yourself. You just take what you are deserved in the Bolshevik framing of things. Other people will just show up at banks. And they'll say, okay, we're here. Uh, we represent the Communist Party. We need to inspect your safety deposit box. And the banks are forced to open up these safety deposit boxes. And then, of course, the requisition teams basically say, okay, We are seizing these diamonds. We're taking this cash in the name of the people. Now, how much of that actually gets back to the Bolshevik government? Some of it does, but there's plenty of of just stealing going on as well, right? Now, how do you justify this? Well, again, you frame it as looting the looters. If you stole something from me, 
then you don't have the right to own that property. I can just come and take it back. Your property rights are, are liquidated, are disappeared. And so basically what's happening here is the Bolsheviks are creating moral justifications for violence. The idea that private property is sacrosanct is a core principle in a liberal democratic society. It was also sacrosanct under the monarchy. But in this new emerging Soviet state, at least again in these initial stages, take matters into your own hands, create the justice that you've been owed for decades or in some cases centuries. Now, the Bolsheviks do have some sense of law, and to give some sort of legal justification to some of these actions, the Bolsheviks actually set up a new court system known as the People's Courts. And these People's Courts are sort of revolutionary tribunals that are going to dispense justice without the, again, the trappings, the formal uh, necessities of law like we would normally think about, right? There's no formal docket. There's no, well, you know, we're going to book this case for several uh, months in advance. There's no rules of evidence. There's no, you know, okay, this person spoke out of turn, so, so we can't, you know, proceed forward. And in many cases, these judges are not judges with formalized legal training. Some of them are actually just barely literate. And so what you start to get is mob justice. If you've seen one of the Batman movies where they, uh, the, they have Bane, I guess, and they take over the city and they, they show like a trial, and the trial doesn't really matter. The guilt or innocence of the defendant has already been kind of determined. And the joke is that you can have exile or death. And then, of course, when you choose exile, what does it lead to? Oh, exile means you have to walk across the frozen river and you're going to die anyways. Right? So the whole thing is kind of a farce to us because we come from a society where the rule of law matters. In the Bolshevik sense, the rule of law is irrelevant. What matters is justice. And so if you set up these kind of revolutionary tribunals, what are they trying to do? They're not trying to get to the matter of truth. They're trying to get at what they would say is class justice, redistribution of land, seizure of property, placing individuals under arrest for crimes that are not kind of like technically legally crimes in a lot of cases, but their crime is their class. Their, their crime is belonging to a group that was doing better, enjoyed things uh, that the, the working class were not allowed to or weren't able to under capitalism or under the, uh, the czarist government. And so in a lot of cases, right, again, the evidence that you present is irrelevant. The guilt or innocence is irrelevant in an absolute sense because your class identity has already determined your guilt or innocence. Now, another way that they begin to let loose the anger of the poor is basically they allow them to establish whatever residence or whatever living quarters they want. They actually encourage them to go into the houses of wealthy people and, and just kind of announce like, okay, I'm showing up here. I'm now living here. So imagine you're homeless, you're poor, and you go out to whatever gated community is close to you. You live in South Florida, you know, some of these places like Marco Island, I think. Uh, you're, you're in Beverly Hills. You're going to go to Rodeo Drive. And let's say you just show up at someone's house. You just show up at Will Smith's house. You say, hey, Will Smith, how's it going? Guess what? I'm now going to live in your bedroom. You and Jada can, can move downstairs. You can sleep on the couch. You, you can do whatever you want, but we're moving in. And also 20 or 30 of my best friends are moving in. Or you're going to move into whatever, again, wealthy celebrity 
whatever, you know, executive, you go to the Jamie Diamond, you're like, you know what, you're a CEO, guess what? I'm moving into your bedroom. I'm moving into your, your you know, private office, your private movie, whatever. I'm going to start using your silverware. I'm going to start eating off of your plates. I'm going to eat all the food out of your kitchen. And guess what? This is class justice. So it doesn't matter. You can leave. You can stay here. I don't care. But now we are having equality in an absolute sense. One of the things that often happens in these cases, of course, is who knows the house best? The servants. And so in some cases, the servants just go, okay, you know, you were the master for so long. I served you. I did all of your stuff. I I dressed you. I cooked for you. I'm not taking it anymore. I'm going to be the master now. You can cook for me. And there's very little, actually, that the wealthy, that the aristocrats can do about it. In many cases, they, they try to flee because you might get denounced, you might get arrested. And so, again, it's this anger this resentment, these feelings of violent self-righteousness that fuel the Bolsheviks politically. The worker or the servant or the peasant who now had land or property, they really didn't care about, again, all these bourgeois niceties, all these questions about law and civil rights and, you know, well, were the Menshevik deputies, were the cadets, were they given due process when they were arrested You know, oh, the Bolsheviks, they broke up the Constituent Assembly. They said it was the counter-revolution. They arrested the royal family. Who cares? I tell you, a lot of these poor people that are getting land for the first time, that are getting access to the good life, that are getting money, that are getting, again, property, or they're living in these quarters, they don't care about the Constituent Assembly. They're not sitting around reading John Locke. What they do care about is, again, the material changes to their own lives which at least in the spring of 1918, for them at least, things seemed to be getting better. The fact that you had to use violence to get the justice that in many ways you've either been promised or you've been expecting in some cases for generations, well, okay, then violence works. Now, not all the violence that's happened in these opening months of the Bolshevik Revolution is done in the name of expropriation or basically taking property. Often there's a kind of symbolic element to it. The idea that the poor and the downtrodden could get revenge through physical acts of violence against the classes that had wronged them. Now, one of the ideas that is kind of invented by Trotsky, but that becomes very popular, is to take the people that are identified with intellectual work, people like priests, bankers, lawyers, you take those intellectuals and you force them to do hard labor on the streets. Teach them the value of a real day's work, right? You Orthodox priest that sits around and you pray with your incense and, you know, you got surrounded by gold and nice clothes and all that. You know what? We're going to teach you what life is really like in the new Russia. We are going to make you do street cleaning. We're going to make you clear rubble out of streets, out of houses. We're going to make you dig holes and ditches, right? That physical labor that is not just physical labor and saying, okay, you're going to, you know, actually do something constructive. It's punitive. It's saying this is what the working classes have gone through for generations. Now you're going to get a taste of what our experience has been like, right? We're not really even about equality anymore in many ways. We're about reversals of grievances. We want you to experience the bitterness that we've experienced for so long. We also want you to understand the new sense of power. Our side is now on top. Your side is on the bottom, and you better get used to it. 
Now, those who were conscripted could actually consider themselves somewhat lucky. Uh, Officers and military cadets really get the short end of the stick, so to speak. They are frequently targets of torture, of murder. In the American context, we might say this is a little bit like a lynching, right? Where the point of a lynching isn't just to kill the person, it's to publicly humiliate them and to send a message about who has power and who does not have power in a society. In the city of Taganrog, for example, there are a number of uh, these red guards. These are factory workers that are kind of running their own militias. They grab a number of the military cadets who tend to come from upper-class backgrounds. Military cadets, you know, again, they're not working. They have the ability to be officers, which were usually associated with the nobility. And so they really don't like these, these military cadets. Well, in Taganrog, for example, they take them to a metal factory and they literally throw them in the blast furnace, right? So you're not just killing your opposition. You're literally like showing them to be no better than than coal, no better than a raw material to chew up. They're not even human. In other instances, officers have their limbs broken, they're tortured, they're mangled, and their bodies are thrown into the sea like animals instead of being given a traditional Christian burial. Why? Because the Bolsheviks and the Red Guards and these, again, this massive violence that they are kind of unlocking from the broader population, they are trying to send a message about the nature of power in the new Soviet Russia. In some ways, it's really just hard to classify all the violence that's unleashed by the Russian Revolution in its first few months in the Bolshevik phase of the revolution. And we tend to think about Bolshevism as being highly centralized. But again, in the beginning, in October, November, December 1917, it's worth noting that the Bolsheviks are really just unlocking or empowering ordinary people to develop their own solutions to inequality. They want mass participation in terror. They are not forcing it upon everyone else. There's a really famous passage that Lenin writes, for example, where basically he urges villages to develop their own ways of, quote, cleansing the Russian land of all vermin, of scoundrel fleas, the bedbug rich. In one place, they will put into prison a dozen rich men, a dozen scoundrels, a dozen workers who shirk on the job. In another place, Lenin writes, they will be put to cleaning latrines. In a third, they will be given yellow tickets after a term in prison, so that everyone knows they are harmful and can keep an eye on them. In a fourth one, one out of every ten idlers will be shot. The more variety, the better. For only practice can devise the best methods of struggle. End quote. Think about that. I know it was a long quote. I know this podcast, so you don't get a chance to look at it all uh, in one go there. But notice the way that he is dehumanizing the opposition. It is not just, well, we disagree with this party, we want them out of power, right? The, the people, and it's not even just politicians, right? The class enemies are literally scoundrels, they're vermin, they're fleas, they're bedbugs. They are not humans, and they are sucking the life out of the working class. And so any measures that are taken to fight back against them seem to be legitimate, seem to be justified, right? When you find fleas or bedbugs in your house, you don't say, oh, okay, let me get a piece of paper. Let me, let me capture them. Let me make sure the bed bug's okay. Let me throw it outside. 
you know, maybe with, with vermin, maybe with, with mice, you might get a live animal trap if you're very humane. A lot of people just get mouse traps, right? Just kill it. Who cares? It's, it's not human. It's not worth trying to save the life of that bed bug. Notice, too, the way that they treat some of the jobs, right? Lenin is thinking, hey, let's have them clean latrines, right? What more demeaning, degrading type of, of experience can we formulate for someone than making them clean a toilet? Like literally cleaning the, you know, feces. It's just, it's not hard to imagine uh, how difficult that will be. And even the idea of violence, right? Lenin is saying, hey, just go shoot some people. Just go shoot one out of every 10 idlers and that'll motivate everybody else, right? Violence can be used to solve social problems. Which, by the way, one of those social problems is not just the rich and the class enemies. He talks about the idlers, He talks about the idea of workers who are shirking their duty. One of the things that we haven't talked about so much about Bolshevism is that it has this this real emphasis on militancy, this real emphasis on this is the moment of history, this is the moment of, of war, like we cannot let our guard down, we cannot afford to be human with our enemies, we cannot afford to be humane with them. Okay, I could go on and on with, with types of examples, violence uh, related to the, uh, the Bolshevik seizure of power. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, Lenin is a tactician. Lenin did not want to get involved with uh, the Orthodox Church, like fighting the Orthodox Church in the early phases of the revolution. So the church basically kind of stays neutral, says, hey, we're going to stay out of this. They are rewarded by being dissolved just a couple months later uh, after January 20th, when all church property is officially confiscated. Now, Lenin was not intending to do it at that particular moment, but some fights break out. Some overzealous members of the Communist Party start trying to to basically take over a a monastery. And so that in and of itself leads to the seizure of church property. But again, the main point is that the early stages of the revolution are not driven by the Bolsheviks so much as they are unlocked by the Bolsheviks, by the anger and resentment that authorize the use of violence within large segments of society. Now, a second key point is that as part of this process, the rule of law is essentially thrown out. Now, we can get into a side debate here about how much the rule of law has ever mattered in Russia, and how much it has mattered, especially since the ascent of Vladimir Putin. One could argue that the rule of law is not so important. There's a lot of bribery. There's a lot of political favors. There's a lot of doing things that are even explicitly illegal. But to whatever extent it had existed, the Bolsheviks completely abandon it almost from the start of the revolution. Power and the victory of the working classes are the only things that mattered, a fact that we'll see in a moment as we start talking about other extreme systems of violence. Now, as all this violence and anarchy is taking place in the winter of 1917-1918, the Bolsheviks also go about transforming the October Revolution, which started, if you remember, But this kind of democratic push, direct democracy, right? It's predicated largely on the ideas of workers' democracy. uh, But there is a democratic element to it. But the Bolsheviks begin to change that into essentially a one-party dictatorship. Now, to understand this process better, it's worth revisiting some aspects of the initial revolution, which you recall were led by elected councils of workers and soldiers, which again are called Soviets. And in the beginning, these councils have a strong democratic air about them. They're made up of multiple parties. They have representation from 
most of the major sort of socialist uh, groups that are there, the SRs, the Mensheviks. And these parties actually have some voice in governments, right? They, they are part of some of the committees. There are, for example, when the Cheka is formed, and we'll talk about them in a second, there are members of the left SRs that are a part of the Cheka when it is first created. And so there is this kind of sense early on, a justification, if you will, of thinking that the new Russia is broadly going to reflect the voices of the working classes. Or if you want to put it in a romantic sense, right, it's going to reflect the voice of the people. The people are not acting through some, you know, several layered, tiered, you know, parliamentary body. They're acting directly through the Soviets, but it is the voice of the people, or so it initially seems. One of the problems here is that the Bolsheviks are not really honest brokers. They're not really interested in the democratic nature of the Soviet. They don't really care about, you know, what is the will of the Soviet? What what do people think? They don't really care. They believe in themselves. They conceive of themselves as part of the vanguard party. And their purpose is to build a communist society, not a democratic one. And so right from the start, they begin to frame any questioning of their policies or their tactics as being illegitimate. In other words, to say, you oppose us, cadets. You're talking about problems with some of the methods we're using for the Constituent Assembly. You're going to organize a rally, which in most liberal democratic countries, we'd say, okay, you have the right to peacefully protest. Even in Tsarist Russia, even though people wouldn't have maybe described it as a right, people did have protests. But the Bolsheviks frame all of this as counter-revolutionary. As Lenin put it, quote, anyone who is not for us is against us, end quote. And so what the Bolsheviks begin to try to do is to monopolize power. Again, any resistance, any questioning of Lenin's development of the revolution, it's easy to label that as counter-revolutionary. If you remember, during the French Revolution, one of the ways that people sort of got power was they embodied the spirit of the revolution. And the way that they did that, especially, was by defending it against the enemies of the revolution, right? I am the one that fights for you. Therefore, you should support me and everyone else should support me. And you delegitimize the opposition that way. And we saw, again, how this happened in our last episode, right? This tactic is basically used to crush the cadet party. And ultimately, it's used to disband the constituent assembly when it comes together in the winter of 1917, 1918. Now, within the party, this is a little bit harder sell, right? The the Bolsheviks are supposed to be a tight-knit working-class party. They're supposed to have the interests of the working class in mind. And so you'd think that there would be room for disagreement, for argument, for exchange within the party itself. What Lenin and the other chief Bolsheviks kind of preach is what they call democratic centralism, which is essentially the idea that, yeah, we can have differing opinions. We've got committees. We'll hash things out in committee. We'll fight about it in committee. But once that committee makes a decision, once it reaches what is labeled consensus, the duty of everyone else within the party is to fall in line. The Bolsheviks, remember, are, are born in this moment in Soviet Russia in debates about, you know, what is the best way forward to achieving power? What is the best way to realize the dictatorship of the working class of the proletariat? And their choice is to become a militant organization. They like the idea of being hardcore revolutionaries that can overthrow 
the existing structures and, and kind of implement their will. So in order to do that, the party has to be incredibly disciplined. They have to act in unison because they're just not large enough to be able to survive kind of cracks in the ice, so to speak. And so Lenin, again, comes up with this idea of democratic centralism, where you're going to have a little bit of democracy within the party, but basically, again, everybody's going to fall in line. Now, from a power standpoint, these ideas, the idea of the vanguard party and democratic centralism, make the Bolsheviks incredibly effective. But it also means, in practice, a heavy centralization of power. It is really, really hard to say we need everybody to fall in line, and yet you're also going to be able to express dissent. Because what happens to those people who seem to constantly be expressing dissent, you know, have differing opinions? Once you've eliminated all the other political parties, it gets real, real easy to label those people as enemies of the revolution. And so in many ways, this is exactly what happens. The democratic elements of the October Revolution, to the extent that they exist, are chipped away at, are kind of narrowed down. And so this moment, right, we started again with this idea of the Soviets, this direct democracy as being the expression of the will of the people. The Soviets quickly lose power in the post-1917, post-October Revolution moment, right? Power is seized in their name, but they will soon no longer be the main organ of government. Instead, the Bolshevik party will take over that function. And we can see this process of centralization right from the start of the October Revolution in 1917, when basically the second all-Russian Soviet creates an executive committee of people's commissars to run the country until the work of the Constituent Assembly could be completed. Now, of course, that Constituent Assembly lasts for about 24 hours, never really had a chance to make a real government. And so that executive committee of the people's commissars, they basically start running the government on a day-to-day basis. And it's here that Lenin basically holds sway. Um, the, the name of this uh, group becomes known as the Sovnarkom, the people's commissars. And eventually they get replaced by the, the political bureau or the Politburo of the Communist Party. The Communist Party, by the way, uh, the name of the Bolsheviks, they, they officially changed the name of their party in March 1918 to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union or the CPSU. And so at that time, we can start talking about them as the Communists instead of just being the Bolsheviks. But basically, the point is that in this Sovnarkom and later on in the Politburo, the distinction between the party, which is the Politburo, and the, the, again, the, the people's commissars, which is more the government position, that kind of begins to erode, right? The, the distance, the wall, you know, the, that erodes. In most democratic countries, you'd say the leaders of the country, they have an official capacity that they act in where they say, okay, I'm, I'm a senator, I'm a congressman, I'm a president or prime minister, and I act in those roles in an official capacity. And then on my free time, I go and do stuff that is party politics, there might be some committee, I might be on some, uh, you know, head of some political action committee, I might be raising money for other politicians, I might be going to some kind of political dinner or, or celebration or event. But most politicians would concede they kind of have two hats. There's the official hat, and then there's the party hat. In the Soviet Union, 
especially by the time you get to 1918, that distinction is collapsing. And so as Lenin is sitting around talking about party business, talking about government business, there's no real difference between the two. Now, as I mentioned, what happens by the early 20s is that the political bureau or the Politburo of the the Communist Party essentially begins taking over this role. Now, what's fascinating about this is the Politburo is basically doing this in the name of the Central Committee, which is doing this in the name of the Communist Party as a whole. So not only is democratic centralism sort of saying, okay, the Communist Party is going to have a monopoly on political power, but increasingly the people that are in the room making the decisions gets narrowed down more and more and more. So most communists are not actually involved in the, in the decision-making process. They wait to find out what do, do the people in the Politburo, being the members and the candidate members, what do those people say? What are the decisions that they're making? So initially, this Politburo has five members on it. Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, and a couple others. And then there are three people that are candidate members who they, they hope one day they can become a full member. They're in the room, they're debating, and one day most of them do become actually members of the Politburo. But you're talking about a dictatorship of a handful of people. And increasingly, especially after the death of Lenin in 1924, there will be rivalries, there will be troikas that are set up, or basically, you know, like groups, factions that are going to try to take over the Politburo and then are going to make decisions and then force everybody else to go along with those decisions. So if you can see what's going on here, if you think about, you know, Russians are famous for those sort of babushka dolls where you've got the big one and you open it up and there's a little one inside and, you know, you keep opening it and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. This is essentially what happens to Soviet government. The party is the outer shell. Then you get into the, the, the more core members, you get into the central committee, you get into the Politburo, and eventually where this is going to take us is you get into a dictatorship of one. Now, that dictator is not Lenin. Lenin rejects the idea of personal dictatorship. He likes the idea of this, again, democratic centralism. But Joseph Stalin is not one who is going to pass up that chance. And we'll talk about in our next episode how Stalin begins to centralize power and basically transform the Soviet Union into a one-man dictatorship. But again, the elements are there in Lenin's thinking. As he puts it, quote, an unqualified centralism and the strictest discipline of the proletariat are among the principal conditions for the victory over the bourgeoisie. Whoever in the least weakens the iron discipline of the party, of the proletariat, aids in reality the bourgeoisie against the proletariat. Right? So you can be the most diehard communist. You can be the reddest of the red. But if you deviate from, again, what he calls the iron discipline of the party, you're really helping the bourgeoisie. You're really a class enemy yourself. And so one of the big kind of long-term consequences of democratic centralism is going to be making violence legitimate, not only against your enemies outside the party, but soon it's going to be directed towards people inside the party who you start to identify as enemies because they disagreed with you about some point or another. So that covers the development of the Soviet dictatorship. It's time now to talk about another element of violence that happens, which is the terror. And the terror is not violence that is directed primarily or unlocked primarily for the masses to carry out, but the terror is going to be violence directed above by the nascent Soviet state. 
And this is in some ways a product of a kind of contradiction, a sort of odd discrepancy that you may have noticed so far, right? Lenin and the Bolsheviks are building this kind of highly centralized dictatorial state, but at the same time, they're kind of unleashing the forces of anarchy. And so as you might imagine, that's not a long-term solution. That's not something that's going to last and prove durable or sustainable. And so what begins to happen as you get into the summer of 1918 is that Lenin and the Bolsheviks will start to crack down upon their uh, political enemies, uh, upon rival centers of power, upon others that could potentially challenge them. Now, the first tool for achieving this control is, of course, the violence directed at class enemies that were initial targets of the revolution. We're talking about representatives of the bourgeoisie or of the old imperial order like those cadets like those officers who continued to live in Russia after October of 1917. Now, in the early days of the revolution, this also includes civil servants who we talked about. They went on strike in the early days of the revolution. What are you going to do about them? Well, you just arrest them. You just kill them in some cases, right? You, you just get rid of them. We could also talk as we have about members of the cadet party. We talk about the constituent assembly. We can talk about some of what are labeled the right SRs, Right, they have a problem with the idea of violence being used against the provisional government, the Mensheviks. Right, all of these people are kind of just disposed of with violence, branded as counter-revolutionaries in the early days of the revolution. Now, the main organ for carrying out these arrests, especially post October 1917, is not the police, but a new revolutionary institution known as the Cheka, which is set up in November 1917 by the Sovnarkom. Now, the Cheka operates outside the law. The Cheka has no responsibility to anyone, again, except for those few leaders that are the people's commissars that are acting as the kind of official government in the early winter of 1917. And in the beginning, it's sort of set up to be something like what the Gestapo turns into in Germany. The Gestapo are the secret police, and their job is to kind of combat political crime. So their job is to kind of look at, okay, who are the people that are literally challenging us for political power. Now, that sounds pretty bad, of course, right? Nobody wants to, uh, to have themselves arrested just because of voicing their political dissent. But at least living in that kind of society, you have a sense of what the rules are, right? I know, okay, if I want to avoid being arrested by Hitler, as long as I'm not out there, you know, criticizing Hitler openly, publicly on the middle of the street corner— the Gestapo is probably going to leave me alone. And many of the early efforts of the Cheka are focused on this kind of political function, suppressing political dissent, the arrest of opposition politicians, journalists, and even of critics of the regime, including somewhat sadly, a guy named Bimbam the Clown. Uh, poor Bimbam is up there. He's uh, a clown. So what do clowns do? They tell jokes. So Bimbam's up there telling jokes. The Cheka shows up. He says, oh, you know, I'm going to run away. This doesn't look good. And they actually just shoot him in the pack in front of everybody at the, uh, at the carnival where he, where he was telling these anti-Bolshevik jokes. But the Cheka does not remain solely a political tool. At least if we were living in this type of society, we know there's rules to the game. And so long as I follow those rules, I'll be okay. However, a failed uprising in July of 1918 by the left SRs so the members of the Socialist Revolutionary Party that went along with most of the Bolshevik seizure of power, they went around with all the violence and the looting of the looters. But in July of 1918, they decided that this was the time that they were going to resist. 
around that same time as the uprising, there's the assassination of one of the Cheka's regional leaders named Moisha Ritsky. And there's also a failed attempt on Lenin's life in August of 1918. And so basically what the Bolsheviks decide is it's not enough to try to react to, you know, people that are, are politically challenging us, that are, you know, potential third column. It's not enough to, to wait and to look for justice. Instead, the Cheka needs to be an instrument for waging class warfare. The Cheka needs to go after people, not based on the idea of their guilt or innocence, but to just decide these people are enemies of the state and therefore it's legitimate to eliminate them. And so in September of 1918, they engage in a series of mass arrests and executions of class enemies. We're talking about the deaths of tens of thousands of people who, again, are not executed because they really present some sort of challenge to the regime. They are executed as part of the idea of class warfare to show the muscular nature of the Soviet state, to literally eliminate people and open up positions for the advancement of working class people. In the end, the effects of this red terror are profound. It goes on for actually several years. About 100,000 people or more are arrested. And each year between 1918 and 1922, tens of thousands of people are just shot. Shot for being class enemies, shot for being wealthy, shot for being aristocrats. But the idea of using violence to cleanse society of your enemies is seen as legitimate. Dissent, even from the newest allies of the Bolshevik regime, is rapidly crushed with the principle established that mass shootings and terror are an appropriate part of day-to-day governments in Soviet society. Again, violence is seen as a legitimate tool for the production of social harmony, not something that is exceptional, not something that only needs to happen in times of crises, or that normally needs to be restrained or controlled, as it would be in a liberal democratic society. Now, these tendencies towards the acceptance of limitless violence can be seen by looking at another fundamental aspect of the revolution, which is the crackdown on the peasantry that also occurs in the late teens and early 20s. If you recall, we we left off our discussion of the peasants when they were basically seizing noble estates, seizing property, and kind of sitting around saying, oh, this is good, you know? We've redistributed property, large numbers of peasants who never had anything before. Now they've got a little bit of land to call their own. And so again, peasants very satisfied in the initial stages of the revolution. But this satisfaction is to be short-lived. This is because by the summer of 1918, the Bolsheviks find themselves not only at war with Russian society and with their sort of socialist rivals, but there are a number of counter-revolutionary forces that are basically called the Whites. Now, to combat these forces, the Bolsheviks, led by Trotsky, begin to form a new military known as the Red Army. And we'll talk about the Red Army in just a second. But to equip this new army, the Bolsheviks have to figure out how to make the Russian economy work. And they want to carry out economic reforms that are designed simultaneously to create communism while also kind of supplying or fueling or making the war economy work so that they can obviously win what becomes known as the Russian Civil War. And historians refer to this period, or this this kind of economic system, as war communism. Now, a huge part of this economic program revolves around the idea of needing to feed all the soldiers. 
So we'll see in a second when it's kind of in its largest form, if you count all the people that served in the Soviet military, we're talking about 5 million soldiers that will serve in the Red Army. So how are you going to feed 5 million soldiers who are, you know, not available, obviously, for farming? Now, under normal circumstances, the central government basically purchases these resources from local producers, which in the peasants were mainly talking about grain. But the Bolsheviks don't believe in capitalism. And one of their central goals is not only to achieve power, but they want to destroy the idea of the market. Capitalism works or functions based on this principle of the market. So the idea that the government, the Soviet government, is going to go out and start purchasing grain, well, that doesn't make any sense to the Bolsheviks. So basically, in the late spring of 1918, they turned to the idea of just taking it. In May of that year, they declare a monopoly on the ownership of food, meaning that the Soviet government could take anything it wants to. Now, to sell this idea to the peasants, especially to the rural peasants, right, who are the ones who are growing and, and, and maintaining a lot of this food, they try to export the idea of class warfare to the countryside. Now, class warfare is all supposed to be about workers who are in factories who are being exploited, and they're supposed to get class consciousness, and they're supposed to rise up against the bourgeoisie who is exploiting them. Peasants don't really fit into this story. But the Bolsheviks try to create a sort of a sense among the peasantry that, well, yeah, actually there are class relations in the countryside as well. They start talking about these guys known as kulaks. Kulaks are kind of rich, wealthy peasants. They've got a lot of land, maybe more than they really need. Kulaks are, they've got so much land they can't farm it with their own families. They have to basically pay other people to come and work for them. And so, that, you know, again, the Bolsheviks are kind of saying, well, these are like the, the rural version of the capitalists. So what do we need to do? We need to get justice. We need to redistribute their property. We need to confiscate their grain because they're the fat peasants that have been hoarding the grain, that have been stealing, that have been keeping and thinking only of themselves. Now, this effort is applied. They do try this. There are some peasants that do this. They show up, again, at the wealthy peasant's house. They kind of say, okay, we're taking some of your grain. Uh, you have surplus grain. We're going to take it. Sometimes they say, ah, we hate you. You've, you've exploited everyone else. You've left us starving. We're seizing all of your grain in the name of the people. And so for farmers, this is particularly bad because not only if you take my grain, do I have nothing to eat? But I need more grain, seed grain, in order to plant for the future. So if people come and take all my grain, it's tantamount to just executing them or it's, it's borderline forcing them into starvation. Now, by the late summer of 1918, this doesn't work very well, right? There are some peasants that, that get into it, that want to take the grain. There are a whole bunch of other peasants that don't, right? They, they, there aren't really a lot of rich, wealthy landowners that are from the peasantry, that are commoners that are just exploiting everybody else. And so in August of 1918, the Soviet government begins a campaign with basically requisition teams. They start saying, let's get a bunch of workers, let's get a bunch of communist-minded peasants, we'll go out to the countryside, and we'll show up and we'll just take the grain ourselves. And when we get to the villages, after this happens a little bit, some of the villagers start saying, okay, I don't want all my grain stolen. 
So I'll hide the grain. So then the requisition teams start to say, okay, you're going to hide the grain, or we're not fulfilling the quotas. Never mind if you actually had the grain to begin with. We have quotas that we have to meet. You're not giving it to us. We will take hostages. We will kidnap people. We will execute them if we don't get the grain that we expect. As you can imagine, the effects of this program are devastating to the peasantry. Between 1918 and 1920, official Soviet records state that 9 million people die of hunger. Other accounts, a little bit lighter, say only, right? We're putting only in in quotes there. Only 5 million people die of starvation in Soviet Russia in the early days of the Soviet state. The best solution to escape all this, actually, is literally to escape, right? You get a lot of emigration, a lot of people that leave and move to other parts of the Soviet Union where at least, you know, people aren't going to show up and try to steal their grain and steal all their food. In 1920 to 21, a group of peasants will even revolt against the Soviet regime, right? So 1918, they went along with it. They kind of helped, whether actively or passively, sometimes a little bit of both, but they, they helped, they stood by while the Bolsheviks began and created a dictatorship using violence against their political enemies. By the summer of 1920-21, they start to rethink this. They start to think, "Eh, actually, this wasn't such a great idea. But at that point, it's too late. The peasant army is crushed in the summer of 1921. The civil war that's been going on has already largely been won by the Bolsheviks. And so the result, again, is not a challenge or a collapse of Bolshevik government, but tremendous suffering by farmers and peasants. The number of livestock in the Soviet Union falls to about a third of pre-war levels. The amount of fertilizer used in agriculture, right? Fertilizer, kind of industrial good, right? Very important for farming. Falls from 700,000 tons before World War I to just 20,000 tons by 1920. So 700,000 tons to just 20,000 tons in the scope of about six years. We also see dramatic changes in the area under cultivation, right? You don't have the people anymore to literally farm the land. And so the amount of land under cultivation will drop by about a third. The amount of grain and potatoes produced drops almost in half. And so as a result, Lenin basically decides, as we'll see in a moment, to back off of the the most extreme elements of war communism. The idea of of banning money, the idea of destroying markets completely, they're going to walk that back because it's just not sustainable. Now, a second area of Bolshevik intervention that we do need to mention is also the nationalization of industry. Now, what's surprising about this is you'd think a lot of Bolsheviks would say, hey, let's just jump right to industry. Let's nationalize everything. But there's actually a lot of concern about it and a desire to kind of move cautiously on this front. However, the desire for revenge among workers, like that popular surge of enthusiasm for violence, it helps accelerate the process as workers in 1918 just basically take over factories. In the summer of 1918, the Bolsheviks nationalized all large-scale industry, and as you might imagine, this resulted in huge industrial shortages as well. Essentially, once the workers take over the factory, or once the Bolshevik state eventually takes over the factory, you plan everything from above. They actually create this kind of body known as the Supreme Economic Council, 
And the Supreme Economics Council's job is to, to basically, you know, make decisions about production, deliveries, you know, hours spent, what are we going to focus on? Now, as anybody who lived through the 1970s and 80s knows, this idea of central planning, a lot of times it leads to kind of shortages, long lines. It's not very efficient. But in 1918, you're not only talking about a kind of central planner that's inefficient to begin with, but you're talking about departments that are woefully understaffed, that don't really have a lot of, again, bureaucrats to run the system. It's brand new. They just created it. And so you start to see things like factories that just close down because they literally don't have the materials to make it work, which then, of course, creates secondary problems of, well, what happened to all the workers that now have nothing to do and are pretty pissed off and have just witnessed the use of violence by factory workers in militias to seize the control of government? In the short term, even though the Red Army does begin to defeat the whites because the whites are actually even more incompetent than, than the Red Army is, more harsh, more uh, uh, disjointed. The Soviet economy by the fall of 1920 literally starts falling apart. Barter and the black market become increasingly central to the way that the Soviet economy will work, just as they did, one could argue, uh, after the, the sort of shortages set in the 1970s and 1980s. And so not only do you have, again, this kind of falling apart of the economy, but as the Bolsheviks begin to win the Civil War, as they begin to demobilize those millions of soldiers that are serving in the Red Army, you now have this problem of chaos, starvation, and now a whole bunch of people with military expertise, and in some cases with weapons, who are just going to be very unhappy. And so obviously that's not a very good long-term sustainable situation for the Bolshevik government. In 1921, there's this group of sailors at the port of uh, Kronstadt, which is a naval base. And these, these sailors are basically, they're like the reddest of the red. They are, are some of the leaders of the October Revolution, right? One of the things that happens that kind of kicks off the timing of the revolution is they were out on their ships, they come back to port, and they get out of the ships, and now they're there, and they're ready to help seize power. In March 1921, these guys go on strike and they start demonstrating and they start saying, look, you know, you promised us this government in the name of the Soviets, but the Soviets have no voice and civil liberties have no voice and things are actually getting pretty bad here and you've betrayed the revolution. Now, Lenin is not going to tolerate this. After a couple of weeks, the rebellion is put down violently by the Bolshevik government. But the experience convinces Lenin that they need to change course. And remember, Lenin is, you know, he's steeped in philosophy. He's, he's a Marxist, but he is a tactician above all else, right? And so when things don't go well, he has no problem saying, okay, temporarily retreat, make some concessions, let's get back to stability, because the survival of the revolution is in many ways more important than the revolution achieving its goals, but if the Bolshevik party is no longer in control, then what was the whole point of the, the revolution to begin with? And so basically, they shift to something called the New Economic Policy, or the NEP, in 1921. Basically, they stop the grain requisitions. They start to say, okay, this is not working. This is not a good idea. Let's have a tax instead. Let's allow the peasants to grow as much as they want. We'll allow them to actually have a little bit of a market. 
And if they make extra grain after the tax, well, they can sell that, they can make a little money. And now all of a sudden there's an incentive for peasants to produce food that we need so that people don't starve. The Bolsheviks also reintroduce a limited form of the market. They start to say, okay, if you want to open up a mom-and-pop trading store, that's fine. We're not going to have large conglomerates. We're not going to have you know, major companies with you know, thousands of workers. But if you want to open a little shop and a little business on your own, well, that's okay. We, we can live with that. The Bolsheviks start to allow hard currency and foreign investment to flow. And so gradually, starting in the early 20s, starting in 1921 with the implementation again of this NEP, or New Economic Policy, for the first time in a decade, things seem to really be getting better systemically in the Soviet Union. There is a sense of normalcy, a sense of recovery that begins to set in. And we'll talk about what happens after 1924 Uh, when we talk about Stalin and some of the industrial changes that he begins to implement. Okay, having really flushed out the violence of the early Soviet era, it's worth returning to the question that we started this episode with, which is how could anyone support living in this type of society? A place where there is basically no rule of law, where private property exists only in a kind of tangential and existential way, where you can be arrested or shot, or starved at basically any moment. Why on earth would anyone want to support this society? Part of the answer, of course, goes back to our Yoda quote, that anger is often used to justify the suffering of others. And even in a sense that the people take take joy out of the suffering of others. It doesn't really matter what I have. If the conditions in my life are getting better, Sometimes people like to just see those who think about themselves or who we think think about themselves as our betters, sometimes we just like to see them suffer. It's a really dark side to human nature. In 1917 and 1918, there are a lot of socialists that look upon the suffering of the elites and take great joy in it. And they're totally oblivious to the fact that one day this could totally be turned on them. And indeed, that's exactly what happens in the 1920s and 30s. Again, it's worth noting that many of the prominent Bolsheviks who championed the creation of the Cheka, which also included uh, members of the the left-wing socialist revolutionaries, they're in favor of creating the Cheka. The people that are involved in grain requisitioning, the people that favor and design and support, and in some cases carry out the liquidation of their political enemies, those people will all eventually become victims, or many of them will become victims of the same system that they themselves helped to build. But it goes even deeper than this. Because at the same time as the revolution consumed and destroyed, it also opened new opportunities for social mobility, especially among the groups and classes that had suffered the most in Tsarist Russia. For the landless peasants, the revolution brought opportunity, at least until the late 1920s, to own their own land. For factory workers, the destruction of the old elites, the owners and the managers and the engineers and the civil servants. Well, in a practical sense, that means a whole lot of new job openings, new opportunities for them to take those positions. The idea of going to university, you know, living in the 21st century, living in the United States, living in Europe, 
a lot of us take the idea of going to university for granted. Right? What is the college experience supposed to be all about? Yeah, dad, mom, I know it's all about getting a job. I know, I, you know, something practical. I got that. But it really isn't college just about the experience of a good time and partying and, and becoming an adult, learning to make decisions on my own, right? Isn't, 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 shouldn't everybody go to college? Before the 1960s, very, very few people go to college. It's, it's very rare, actually. And part of the reason it's rare is that in order to go to college, you need someone else to take care of you for four or five years, depending on how long you're in college. You can't hold a full-time job and be in college at the same time, especially before the 1960s. And so as a result of that, the people that go to college, the people that become educated elites, that, that work in government offices, become leading civil servants, they tend to be the children of the wealthy or the children of aristocrats. In the nascent USSR, in this communist Soviet society that is being built in the 1920s and even in the 1930s, those opportunities to go to university are suddenly going to become available to members of the Communist Party. People from working class backgrounds are going to gain access to the elite educational institutions of the state. And education means social mobility. Education means access to the bureaucracy, which then in turn gets you access to benefits and to the good life. Right? The farther up I move in Communist Party circles, the more loyal I am to the party, the more and more I am going to reap the benefits of membership. Right? There is a whole kind of culture in Soviet society right from the beginning of patronage. I reward the people that support me, and I will punish the people who don't support me. From our perspective, that sounds horrible. We don't want to live in a society where it's basically based on patronage and corruption and, and just these kind of very narrow, very kind of tit-for-tat relationships. We want the, the meritocracy. We want people who excel, who do the best to be able to benefit, to be able to rise. But for people living at the bottom of Russian society in 1915, 1916, it's really hard to tell the difference between the two. In fact, the Soviet system might even seem better because as a working class person, in the name of justice, you get moved ahead in the queue. Now, another empowering aspect of Soviet society, especially in the early 20s, is the development of the Red Army itself. Now, on the surface, this might sound a little counterintuitive, right? We think about being in the army as, as not something that is, is related to social mobility. Although, if you look closer in the United States, it certainly fulfills that role. But the Red Army is essentially the brainchild of Trotsky, who, instead of thinking about the Red Army as just being, you know, okay, we've got to win this war, it's a military, etc., the Red Army becomes into the primary vehicle or one of the, the primary vehicles for socializing the new Soviet man, for teaching him about discipline, teaching him the ideology, but making him a believer in the system that the communists are creating. And one really fascinating way to look at this is to think about what they're doing. Soldiers in the Red Army are not just learning how to shoot guns, learning you know, military tactics and strategy and things like that, but they also learn how to read and write. 
Trotsky wants them to become the new Soviet citizen, and the new Soviet citizen needs to know how to read Marx. And Marx is not easy to read. And so we need these peasants, we need these workers, we need to give them a a, a very rudimentary education, which in Imperial Russia wasn't something that they had. So it's really fascinating. If you look at these things like the reading primers, the mobile bookstores, the way that they teach reading isn't just to say, you know, see Dick run, 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 see Jane run, 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 you know, like people used to do in the 50s. They teach them in terms of class identity. They teach them all about the working class in these primers. Now, another thing that Trotsky does that's pretty brilliant when we're talking about the Red Army is instead of trying to, to go through with, again, the values of the revolution, instead of saying, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a communist first, I'm a socialist first, I really want to, you know, build socialism in, in, in Russia, he says, we got to win the war first. Practicality takes precedence. And so Trotsky begins to actively recruit members of the old imperial officer corps, including our old friend Alexei Brusilov, who you'll recall was the leader of the provisional government's failed 1917 summer offensive. Basically, the backstory to this is that in uh, in 1920, the the nascent Soviet government gets involved in, in a war with Poland. It's not going very well. And so they appeal to some of these imperial officers and say, look, even though you might not like communism, even though you might you know, still have loyalties to the old imperial government, if you come back, we'll, we'll do kind of like an amnesty. Come back and, and help Russia, or what was once Russia, help us win this war, right? Defend our territory from the big bad Poles who we don't want taking over imperial Russian space. And so this is what happens. Those officers come back, and Trotsky begins to re-implement discipline in the ranks. He will rescind the famous order number one and get rid of those elected soldiers committees and he'll replace them basically with political commissars. Trotsky doesn't quite trust these imperial officers just yet. And so you'll get this kind of dual command structure within Soviet units where you have the the commander, the military officer, but there's a political commissar in each unit that's there to kind of ensure everybody is, is kind of in with the major plan, right? Everybody is practicing, you know, true communism. The officers aren't aren't abusing the men, and especially that everybody is following the directives of the Communist Party. Finally, as Soviet society stabilizes over the course of the early 1920s, it seems to many observers that the long-held Russian dream of modernization was finally being brought about as a direct result of the centralization of political and economic power. We haven't really spent a lot of time talking about this, but Soviet thinkers, Soviet authors, Soviet cultural producers, they think about what they're doing as being not this kind of backwardness, not this kind of, oh, dictatorship and repression, but they think about themselves as kind of realizing the society of the future. This notion of the future, of industrialization, this is so core to the Soviet project, right? The idea that you're going to take this backward czarist government, the provisional government, they couldn't industrialize Russia. Russia was always behind everybody else. They always had the worst technology. But what if the the Soviets could leapfrog the Western powers? What if Russia could become the kind of 
cutting-edge technological center? You know, what if it could become kind of like the Silicon Valley of the 1920s? Whether or not they can actually do this is one thing, but there is widespread enthusiasm for the idea of trying. There is enthusiasm, especially about the idea and the power of machines. Can we mechanize society and in doing so solve a lot of the social crises that were brought on by the original moments of industrialization? Can we set up schools that will emphasize the importance of science and mechanical proficiency? Right? If you think about it, whether or not communism and Marxism are actually rational and, and scientific, they think about themselves that way. They imagine themselves that way. Think about their attitude towards religion. Right? They think about religion as the superstition. It's the enemy of, of the Enlightenment and, and European philosophies have been trying to drive it out for, for centuries is the way that a lot of people think about it. The Soviets think about themselves as the one who will drive that superstition out. They think about themselves as the ones who will introduce real, rational, and, and industrial era education, not just to working class people, but also to farmers. They're going to take that idea of culture and civilization, and they're going to export it to the fringes of the former Russian Empire. No longer are you going to have peasants living in places like Uzbekistan or places like Tajikistan that are walking around barefoot, that are illiterate, that are ill-mannered, that are spitting inside their homes, that don't bathe, right? Instead, the Soviets are going to bring the culture of modernity and futurism to those people. There is a kind of messianic nature or a messianic appeal that in the early 1920s is really, really attractive to a lot of young people in the Soviet Union. Now, obviously, the difference between reality and the hopes and goals and aspirations, especially with communism, are pretty profound. But there are areas where they do make some progress. The Soviets will try to achieve more equitable gender relations. Part of this is the idea, let's mechanize not only industrial factory production, but are there ways that we can mechanize domestic labor? Can we relieve some of the domestic burdens that are placed on women? Can we build communal dining halls so that women aren't stuck at home making dinner every night? Can we build communal laundries so that women aren't stuck uh, washing clothes by hand? And if you've ever had the chance to wash clothes by hand, you'll know it's a giant pain in the butt. We're so lucky now that we have washing machines and dryers. We just stick it in there and, okay, I'm going to go read a book, sit there on my phone, who knows? But in the 1920s, they don't have that yet. And so for individuals to, to try to do laundry is very time-consuming. It's very labor-consuming. Think about child-rearing. They talk about the idea of, of building communal nurseries. Let's open up the ability of women to contribute equally to the workforce. This is the communist ideal, and this is something that many of them actually do. Even something like divorce. Divorce is something that, you know, sadly, I think it's about half of all marriages end in divorce today. This is increasingly acceptable in the second half of the 20th century. But in the first half of the 20th century, it's very, very rare. It's very, very taboo in Western Europe and in the United States. In Soviet Russia, it becomes legal 
and it becomes increasingly acceptable, not just with the idea that a man is going to divorce his wife, but also that she can divorce him. So you're seeing some some strides towards gender equality. There are reasons for people living in this period to start to get excited, to start to feel like they're making progress, not just in terms of the political power of the party, but there's real benefits. There's a real sense of, again, empowerment that then legitimizes or seems to back up or reinforce the use of all this violence. We can even see this in something like film. They are real supporters of experimentation in arts. Think about something like montage. Montage is basically a way of making film scenes that you're pretty much familiar with from from a lot of different movies, right? There'll be a scene, they'll put on some music. I like to think about Rocky, for example, one of the Rocky scenes where, okay, he's got a train, so they show him doing various exercises and there's music in the background and he's running on the beach and you get the idea, okay, this is what's going on. Montage was invented by the Soviet director, Sergei Eisenstein. We can see it in other places too, right? Let's experiment with music. Think about something like an orchestra. An orchestra, in many ways, is a very bourgeois type of thing, right? All the fancy instruments, people sit around and play music all day. But an orchestra also has a leader. It has a conductor that's telling everyone else what to do. A guy, usually a guy, who is higher in status than the rest of the orchestra. The Soviets say, well, we don't need that. Let's have an orchestra without any direction, right? It's the democratic spirit of the people that will guide the orchestra making music. Let's create a symphony using the factory. Let's let's celebrate the noise of machinery and transform that into a form of kind of like a music to show the harmony of the factory, of the labor, of the production. They get away with some really uh, kind of crazy ideas here. One of the uh, really neat things they do is they decide to put on a production of a new play called The Storming of the Winter Palace in 1920. This is going to celebrate, obviously, the Bolshevik seizure of power and the capture of the Winter Palace. Well, what better stage could we set to reenact that drama than the Winter Palace itself? In fact, they haul the Aurora, which was a, a cruiser that signaled the start of the revolution by firing its cannons, they actually bring the Aurora over and fire its cannons as part of the play. So you're kind of collapsing this idea of reality, art, right? Art is going to, to, to begin to engineer the human soul, to use a very famous quote, right? Art is going to be a method for birthing this new Soviet man and new Soviet woman. It's going to be celebrated and supported. And not just the idea of art for art's sake, or, you know, oh, here's this fancy painting somebody made, let me, let me buy it for a million dollars. But art in the service of the revolution. Art in the service of celebrating working class people and working class culture. Finally, uh, just one last point. It's worth noting with the adoption of the five-year plans in the late 1920s and early 1930s, that the Bolsheviks actually do begin to transform long-held dreams of Russian industrialization into economic realities. But we'll get into this more in our next episode on Stalin. In the end, the Bolshevik Revolution is obviously successful from a political standpoint. And I mean this not only in the sense that they eliminate their rivals, they create a monopoly on political power, but also in the cultural sense as well. 
by hook or by crook, they essentially win the loyalty of the masses. And they use that loyalty to create a powerful and industrialized state, achieving in just a few short years what the czarist government had not been able to achieve in over a century. But these victories came at a tremendous cost. In legitimating the use of violence to secure political power and to carry out the revolution, the Bolsheviks created a system that further replicated itself. The search for enemies of the state did not wane with their victories in the Civil War, as one might expect, but actually only intensified in the late 1920s and 1930s as the Soviet government tried to cope with its failures related to industrialization. The principle of democratic centralism that was so celebrated by people like Lenin became increasingly exaggerated until all power was finally centralized in the hands of one man, Joseph Stalin. Those who espoused its virtues in the 19-teens and 20s, men like Trotsky and Zinovia and Bukharin and others, would soon find themselves its primary victims. And the gains experienced by many workers and peasants in this period would also soon be reversed as Soviet society was forced into industrialization from above. Millions would die through shootings and starvation, while countless others were worked to death in the labor camps that are known as gulags that we'll talk about in our next episode. Violence beget only more violence. Only in the 1920s and 30s, that violence would increasingly be directed not only at those sort of quote-unquote class enemies, but especially at the membership of the Communist Party itself, as well as certain national minorities, especially Ukrainians. And of course, we're sitting here, 2022, we're talking about this amidst the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. Part of the reason that war is going on, part of the reason the Ukrainians don't want to be part of Russia anymore, goes back to decisions that were made in the 1930s by Stalin about Ukrainians and Ukrainian nationality. But we'll get into that more in our third episode on communism when we talk about life in Stalin's USSR. Before we end, though, I want to reiterate something I mentioned at the start of the podcast, which was the role played by ordinary people in this system. Again, it's easy to place the responsibility for this dystopic society at the feet of Bolshevik leaders like Lenin and Trotsky and, of course, Stalin, who helped birth the revolution and who made the major decisions and strategies and policies that shaped the regime. But it was ordinary people, well-meaning individuals who legitimated the system and who made it function each time they accepted the notion that the class struggle justified violence that the rule of law came secondary to the victory of the revolution, that the violent means used to achieve power and domination over society were acceptable due to the nobility of the cause itself. Their blindness, their willingness to set aside principle for practicality, morality for power, helped to create a self-destructive system that led to the deaths of millions and millions of people. As we'll talk about next time, historians have argued about who was worse, Hitler or Stalin, or are they about the same? We talk a lot in American culture about the Holocaust, and for good reason. But it's worth noting that the destructive potential of communism, especially before World War II, is equivalent in terms of 
the number of people killed, right? It's destructive potential, it's impact on Russian society and other nationalities that are caught up within this whirlwind. It is a nightmare come reality. Okay, we'll have to end it there for now. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode, or it sounds a little bit weird kind of saying, I hope you enjoyed this this episode about all the death and destruction and violence. So maybe it's better to say, I hope you found it informative. As always, we're grateful for your support. Please spread the word about us on social media, or if you're able to help us out financially, we'd be especially grateful. There there are some costs that come with putting uh, on and producing a podcast like this, and uh, anything that you can do to help us out, to support us a little bit, we are especially grateful. But for now, thank you again so much for listening. We hope to see you again next time as we take history off the page.